This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Thank you for listening in today. I'm Joel Hilliker. We're getting the first color images from the James Webb Space Telescope this week. Very exciting images that give us a view of our awesome universe and point to the great creator God. King David wrote in Psalm 19, The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. And we see that just in a spectacular way in these images. It's remarkable to look at this at the same time that the world around us is falling apart at the hands of the so-called experts and elites. The leaders in this world are proving themselves absolutely incapable of solving this world's problems. And all of these elites, all the brilliant leaders in science and medicine and politics and economics are being exposed as frauds. I read an article on the Epoch Times this week that said credentials are being discredited by the day. They have led us down a destructive path. This applies not only to epidemiologists, but also economists and public health officials and nearly every other field of expertise, particularly that which tied its credibility to the government's pandemic response, which has ended in calamity for the world. He talks about how there are the leaders in this world are going down in flames. And he says, we let the experts have a go at it. And they created a monstrous experience for billions of people the world over. The impact extends across all class, gender, language, and ethnic lines. Well, on today's show, we have a few stories about just how discredited these elites are. First, we're going to look at the World Economic Forum. This is the elite of the elite, this organization that meets each year in Davos, Switzerland, and they scheme about how to shape the future of mankind. We're going to hear a report from the Trumpet's assistant managing editor, Philip Nice, about some of the creepiest things they've discussed at these meetings. And it just underscores the point of what a disaster these supposedly brilliant people are making of this world. Our second segment will bring some perspective to a trend in America right now. So much corruption is being exposed and these leaders are being so discredited. A lot of people think, well, finally, people are going to wake up and we're going to turn this whole thing around. There's a lot of excitement about what might happen at midterm elections this coming November. We're going to have a wave of conservatism that will bring the country back to normalcy. We'll hear a report from trumpet writer Andrew Miller showing why this is an overly optimistic view. We really need to maintain proper spiritual perspective about the real way that these problems will be solved. In our third segment, we'll talk about one of the most infamous exposures of corruption in American history, Watergate. President Nixon was forced to resign 48 years ago this August But there's a lot more to the story than most people realize. More and more evidence has emerged showing that, in fact, what most people believe was a corrupt president caught trying to undermine an opposition political party, an army of lawyers saving American democracy. Nearly all of that is a lie. We'll hear a report from Trumpet writer Abraham Blondeau. What really happened was the radical left deep state taking down a duly elected president of the United States. Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has written about this in his book, Great Again. There's new 
documents, newly unveiled documents and research that confirm this plot against President Nixon and actually help illuminate important Bible prophecies being fulfilled right now in the United States. Finally, we have started our youth summer camp here at Trumpet Headquarters, and I'll conclude the program with a few words about making use of these warm summer months and kicking your kids outdoors. Let's start by looking at the World Economic Forum in this report from Philip Nice. The project is impossibly enormous. It sprawls across city blocks and beyond. It contains billions of parts and counting, all massed into one mountainous human effort. In form, it is part organic, part artificial, part classical, you might say, and part brutalist. Its mass, its sheer mass is gargantuan. Its height is dizzying and it keeps growing. It's best measured not really in feet or even in miles. It's best measured in lifetimes. Lifetimes lived out and lifetimes cut short. In size, scope, and even appearance, it has a certain awe-striking appeal. Its base is as old as humanity itself. And at its top stands its newest growth, a new layer of material, technology, and people. This is the traditional and perhaps accurate description of the Genesis 11 Tower of Babel. Uh, there's a, a few well-known paintings of this, this structure, what it might have looked like. One that you might have seen by Peter Bruegel the Elder from about 400 years ago, 450 years ago. And it is fascinating to look at this idea of what that, that tower might have looked like. But this description is also an accurate description of our civilization. As we human beings build our tower of civilization, we're pretty good at identifying if we are suffering. We're fairly good at identifying if there's a problem. We know something's not right. And we human beings try to fix it. That's what every election is. That's what every revolution is. But in this age of exposure that you've heard about on this station, we're finding out just how impossible it is for human beings to fix our problems, to fix our civilization. At this point, our solutions are worse than our problems. I want to read to you a few examples of things that have been published on the World Economic Forum. This is a group of uh, very, very powerful people, the heads of mega banks and mega corporations and corporations of corporations and banks of banks and conglomerates of conglomerates. These are the wealthiest and most powerful people on the earth in, in a lot of ways. And they have published solutions. 
in their forum that they are debating and talking about. And here are some of the solutions to our problems in our civilization. No privacy, no freedom, no property, no homes, no guns, no family, no country, no earth, and no choice. There's an abundant amount of material for each of those examples. We'll just give you some. Taking away privacy is presented as a solution by the World Economic Forum, by other elites. They are publishing a number of new technologies that promise to solve problems. We're always trying to solve problems. Some of these sound like satire or, or conspiracy, but these are from the, the World Economic Forum's own website. It has a video called Take a Peek into the Future. Here's a solution to our problems. NASA has invented a system that can ID your, your heartbeat using a laser. Lockdowns are quietly improving cities around the world. Also from the World Economic Forum. This is from a 2018 meeting, uh, and it was the, the CEO of Pfizer, Albert Bourla, uh, who said this before he became kind of a household name during COVID. Uh, but he was saying that uh, the first electronic pill has been produced. Basically, he's, this is quoting him, it is basically a biological chip that is in the tablet, and once you take the tablet, it dissolves into your stomach. It sends a signal that you took the tablet. So imagine the applications of that, the compliance, no privacy. This is another headline from a different source. From tomorrow, all new vehicles sold in the European Union will have mandatory black boxes fitted that record technical data and will be accessible by authorities, greasing the skids for surveillance-powered, speed-limiting technology. So this data will record the vehicle's speed, braking, steering wheel angle, incline on the road, and whether the vehicle's various safety systems were in operation. Also in discussion, individual carbon footprint tracker. Pollution, yes, it is bad. It is a problem. How do we human beings solve it? Giving up privacy, trusting the elites, building another layer on that same tower. Other ideas from the World Economic Forum to solve our problems, to build our tower. Smartphones inside of bodies. At the 2022 meeting, Nokia CEO uh, claim that by 2030, smartphones will be implanted directly into the body. This would coincide with the coming of 6G technology, which is expected to be launched by the end of the decade. Also from the World Economic Forum, your clothing would be tracked soon. The World Economic Forum announced the coming of clothing laced with digital passports that can be traced at all times. Backed by Microsoft, these garments will apparently flood the market by 2025. I don't think they'll hit that deadline, 
but that's in the that's in the works as well. Ideas for solving our problems. Surveilling your clothes, surveilling your pills, surveilling your driving, surveilling your movements. No privacy. Another solution. No freedom. These solutions that get more and more wild, more and more unstable as we try to build this tower. At the 2022 meeting, World Economic Forum meeting, Australian e-safety commissioner Julie Inman Grant stated that we need a recalibration of freedom. Grant said, we are finding ourselves in a place where we have increasing polarization, uh, skipping down, so I think we're going to have to think about a recalibration of a whole range of human rights that are playing out online, and that includes the freedom of speech. No privacy, no freedom. This already exists on the earth in the nation of China. You might have heard of their social credit system. If you speak against the government, if you jaywalk, if you walk your pet with no leash, if you criticize the social credit system, if you break uh, traffic laws, if you call or interact with a friend who has a low social credit score, if you buy too much of something, if you visit wrong websites, if you make wrong statements, if you travel without a ticket on the train or behave disorderly or smoke in public areas, as one recording said, you will be punished according to regulations and your behavior will be recorded in individual credit information system. No privacy, no freedom, more power for those in charge of building the tower. More solutions that are coming our way. No property. Uh, this is from 2016. A uh, member of parliament in Denmark said, Welcome to 2030. I own nothing. I have no privacy. And life has never been better. This is from the World Economic Forum website. I don't own anything. I don't own a car. I don't own a house. I don't own any appliances or any clothes. Shopping is a distant memory in the city of 2030. We are so committed to building our tower, figuring this out ourselves, building it our own way, ignoring the suffering that we're causing and where we're headed, that we will resort eventually to solutions like these. No privacy, no freedom, certainly no guns, no property no homes it's prevalent enough that there's there's even a, a funny um, saying on the internet that sums up some of the solutions offered by the elites and they sum it up as live in the pods eat the bugs but that's literal <laughs> that's not a joke one of the solutions from the world economic forum and be, and well beyond no meat an article in The Economist notes, we're not going to convince Europeans and Americans to go out in big numbers and start eating insects. The trick might be to slip them into the food chain on the quiet. The Guardian writes, if we want to save the planet, the future of food is insects. Bloomberg, burgers made from bugs. The fake meat industry is starting to explore fruit fly patties and mealworm nuggets. Live in the pod, eat the bugs. No privacy, no freedom. No guns, no property, no meat, no home. 
There are solutions out there to solve our problems by having people live in giant sections of pipe. There are solutions out there to dehumanize humans uh, even further. There are solutions out there that seem as fantastical and as far away and as fictional as universal mask wearing used to seem, as staying in your house used to seem, as cities being, quote, quietly improved by lockdowns used to seem. No privacy, no freedom, no guns, no property, no homes, no family, no country, no earth, in fact. Many people have been following the billionaires building their rockets, and and a lot of that is fascinating. Uh, One important part of that uh, plays into these solutions, though. There are billionaires out there who firmly believe that our solution is to leave Earth. We cannot get it right here. We can't, we, our tower uh, has to reach past Earth because we are ruining Earth and each other. By the 2030s, we'll be ready to move humans towards the red planet, said a chief scientist at NASA. We're converting our tower materials from stone and steel to rocket fuel, basically. We need to move to Mars. That's our, that's our solution. Mr. Bezos, this is from the trumpet. Mr. Bezos's, Jeff Bezos's most extravagant notion unveiled in 2019 is a vision of space colonies, spinning cylinders floating out there with all kinds of environments, the New York Times wrote. These are very large structures, miles on end, and they hold a million people or more each. The elites are going to solve our problems by making us, our children, uh, live in cans or on Mars. Live in the pods, eat the bugs. Many uh, These are literal examples from the World Economic Forum. These are literal examples from billionaires, other, other elites, uh, who are trying to solve problems. This is the Tower of Babel. Human civilization itself is the Genesis 11 Tower of Babel. And look how far we will go. Look how desperate we will get to keep building the tower, to never say that we do not know what we are doing. We need a higher power. Human civilization is the Tower of Babel. We clearly will insist to the death, generation after generation, that we will solve our own suffering. We will solve our own problems. We will tolerate our own suffering. We will tolerate our own problems to the point that millions of people can suffer. And we will keep insisting that we can do this ourselves. On this station, you've heard about the age of exposure. So much is coming to light that has been hidden and the rotten, weak, imploding structure that is our human civilization is becoming almost inescapable, almost. But we can escape it if we really want to. We can't avoid admitting that it's not just Democrats or politicians or Americans, it's our civilization our human civilization that 
literally traces its history back literally to the literal Tower of Babel, is failing, has failed. We are not one more spending bill away or one more common sense law or one more midterm election away from fixing our civilization. We are getting wilder and wilder in our solutions to the point that they're worse than the problem. We need to see what these headlines are showing us. We need to see this age of exposure. Our creator is exposing the foundational flaw of human civilization itself. Look at how far we will go. Look at what we will accept. Look at what we will eat. Look at what we will suffer. Just so in the end, we, or at least our elites, can be in charge. Just so we can try to figure out our own way of avoiding consequences. Just so we can try to build that punishment-proof tower rather than building on our creator's foundation. This is how far we will go and further to use whatever it is, however we want, whether it's sex or fats or sugars or music or chemicals or materials, we will do it our own way. And we will try to avoid the consequences and build our punishment proof tower. It's not working. We keep building and building and building but it's a Tower of Babel. This is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. With all the corruption being exposed in America today, many are hopeful that a backlash of conservatism will bring the country back to normal. Is this something America should count on? We'll get an answer in this report from Andrew Miller. Conservatives across the United States of America are ecstatic about Roe v. Wade's overturn. Some even feel the nation stands on the cusp of a third great awakening. At least nine states have already banned abortion. 26 states have introduced bills to expand parental rights in public schools and limit the sexual indoctrination of children. And 42 states have introduced bills to restrict the teaching of neo-Marxist critical race theory in public schools. The U.S. Supreme Court has also recently released opinions expanding gun rights, allowing public school employees to prey on the job, making it harder for states to exclude religious schools from public funding programs, and limiting the Environmental Protections Agency's power to regulate carbon emissions. And Justice Clarence Thomas feels as though the court may just be getting started. He expects originalist justices to soon overturn false constitutional rights to sodomy, same-sex marriage, and contraception access. At the same time, Dinesh D'Souza's documentary, 2000 Mules, is exposing how the radical left stole the 2020 presidential election, 
while analysts predict that Republicans will take control of both houses of Congress this fall. According to senior staff writer Alan Greensblatt at the news analysis site Governing, for Democrats this year, the only real question is whether the election will only be moderately bad or completely terrible. If you think like a weather forecaster, all kinds of data point to a major storm. By basically every metric you can think of, fundraising, candidate recruitment, voter enthusiasm, demographic shifts, a big wave is forming that will sweep hundreds of Democrats out of office up and down the ticket. So with all these facts in mind, is America really on the cusp of a third great awakening? Can the Christian right stem the tide of radical secularism and restore the faith of the founders? Will the Make America Great Again movement actually make America great again? It would be awesome if the answers to all three of these questions were yes. But sadly, there are numerous reasons to be skeptical. No president, governor, or group of justices can make America great again unless the populace repents of its sins. And the evidence shows this is not happening. Now, the most hostile president to the Bible in U.S. history was elected by young people. Exit polls show that 66% of voters under age 30 voted for Barack Obama in 2008. And this was a man who wrote in one of his numerous autobiographies that there is no such thing as absolute truth. This was the greatest ever showing for a presidential candidate in this age range, and a key indicator that the millennial generation is more liberal than any previous generation in American history. Yet Barack Obama's rebellion against absolute truth transformed American politics, governance, diplomacy, policing, morality, race, sex, tradition, and culture in such a way that shocked many older Americans into action. In the 2016 presidential election, roughly 70 million Americans over age 50 voted, and most of them voted for Donald Trump. Many political analysts have referred to Trump's victory as the baby boomer's last hurrah. Those old enough to remember America before Woodstock mourned the loss of their country and rallied together to elect a president who promised to appoint constitutional originalist justices. President Trump kept his promise and appointed Justice Neil Gorsuch, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, and Justice Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, despite violent opposition from the radical left. These three justices joined with Justice Clarence Thomas and Justice Samuel Alito to overturn many unconstitutional court decisions. The fact that a conservative Supreme Court is undoing many catastrophic rulings is an undeniably positive development, but still it does not mean that the American people have repented of their sins. The most recent Gallup poll morality data available shows that 76% of Americans think fornication is morally acceptable, 71% believe homosexual relations to be proper, and 52% think abortion is permissible. This is actually the first time in Gallup's 22-year-old trendline history that more than half the country views abortion as moral. 
So while the Roe v. Wade overturn has determined that abortion is a state's right issue, the people living in those states still view abortion more positively than they have at any other point in American history. Of course, the number of baby boomers who view abortion as moral is far less, yet despite their views on the sanctity of human life, the older generation has failed to instill conservative principles in their children. American parents used to play a more active role in their child's education, but after World War I, many parents began delegating teaching responsibilities to public school teachers steeped in Darwinian science, Marxist economics, and Freudian morality. And because parents weren't vigilant, society began changing. The late Herbert W. Armstrong wrote in his book, The Missing Dimension in Sex, Today's conditions and trends are so frightening in what they pretend, it ought to shock every individual out of complacency into desperate action to reverse this ominous tide. The new morality world was spawned after the turn of the century. It developed from the embryo stage during World War I. It surged mostly among teens unnoticed by their parents on past World War II. The emergence of television after that war gave this trend great impetus. Acceleration sped the downward plunge. The new morality really surfaced in the 60s, blossomed into full boom in the 1970s. Now God told America's Israelite ancestors to teach their children about his laws. You can uh, read that instruction in Deuteronomy 4 verses 1 through 10. But this all-important command has not been kept. This is why today's condition ought to shock every individual out of complacency into desperate action to reverse this ominous trend. Unless America's broken family structure and broken education system are fixed, no president or political leader can make America great again. America is far more morally and religiously liberal today than it was during President Richard Nixon's tenure. A Pew Research Religious Landscape survey found that only 51% of millennials are sure God exists, compared with about 70% of their grandparents who believe there is a creator. And the statistics are even worse regarding belief in the Bible. Only 20% of millennials believe the Bible is the literal word of God, compared to 35% of baby boomers who believe all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So if current trends continue, those born after the year 1997 may become America's first post-Christian generation. So is it any wonder why Americans are turning toward communism and socialism? Those who lack faith in God and the Bible are more likely to put their trust in human governments to solve their problems. This is what we see today. The same generation that says God doesn't exist and the Bible is not inspired also says that Americans need bigger government to protect, provide for, and educate them. As each generation becomes more liberal than its predecessor, even conservatives are compromising. The Republican Party is taking heat from Democrats for passing laws saying you cannot kill your unborn child or give your nine-year-old puberty-blocking hormones. But most Republicans now support same-sex marriage, and many are warming up to transgenderism. They are slowly accepting the immoral culture around them. K 
Canadian author and radio host Mark Stein wrote in his article, Why the Real Battle for America is Over Culture, Not Elections, that, quote, You can't have conservative government in a liberal culture, but that's the position the Republican Party is in today. Liberals expand tremendous effort changing the culture. Conservatives expend tremendous effort changing elected officials every other November, and then are surprised when it doesn't make much difference. Culture trumps politics, which is why, once the question's been settled culturally, conservatives are reduced to playing catch-up, twisting themselves into pretzels to explain why gay marriage is really conservative after all, or why 30 million unskilled immigrants with a majority of births out of wedlock are, quote, natural allies of the Republican Party. So in other words, if the schools are liberal, the business elites are liberal, the media moguls are liberal, the Hollywood producers are liberal, the songwriters are liberal, and even the churches are liberal, then electing a Republican president will not make much difference unless there is a cultural U-turn in American society. America's founding fathers were raised by a generation who left behind the decadent societies of Europe and attempted to build a new society based on principles outlined in the newly translated King James Bible. They understood that high morals and sincere religion were the fundamental building blocks of any virtuous society. President George Washington said during his famous farewell address in 1796, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. A conservative president or a conservative Supreme Court cannot save America if the populace is willing to kick off a second Bolshevik revolution in retaliation against such decisions. It is going to take heartfelt repentance on a nationwide scale to trigger an awakening great enough to, to, to truly make America great again. Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has explained in numerous places that President Donald Trump is an end-time type of King Jeroboam II and is therefore prophesied to lead a movement that causes a temporary resurgence in American might and power. That prophecy is contained in 2 Kings 14, verses 26 through 28. Yet Mr. Flurry further specifies that this brief resurgence does not happen because the American people have repented of their sins. Instead, it is an opportunity that God mercifully gives Americans to repent before they face sudden destruction. In his book, Great Again, Mr. Flurry writes, The curses on America are plain to see. Prophecy is being fulfilled in events all over the globe. You would think that as times get worse and worse, people would look at the Bible to see what God has to say. Conditions are intensifying and getting so bad that anybody can recognize something is terribly wrong. But virtually nobody is turning to God. And that is our shame. America's problems are a direct result of America's sins. No politician is going to make America great again no matter what people think. I would like to see it happen, but it's not going to happen in this age. Everyone will come to recognize that truth before much longer. God will make America great again in the world tomorrow. Now, God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away from those who repent. Uh, still, the Bible strongly indicates that most Americans will not repent until after they've been enslaved and led away captive by an invading enemy. 
Tragically, this is the cycle of history. Faith inspires courage. Courage brings liberty. Liberty causes abundance. Abundance breeds selfishness. Selfishness lulls people into complacency. Complacency corrodes character. Corroded character invites dependency. Dependency grows into bondage. And finally, bondage wakes people up to the need for faith and obedience to God's law. In the four centuries since the first God-fearing colonist arrived in the New World, America has gone through almost every step in this cycle. The nation is already dependent on power blocks like Europe and China, and soon will be enslaved to these Gentile powers unless something dramatic changes. This is not a time for complacency. America desperately needs to turn to God and his inspired word. But there is hope even if America refuses this last chance at repentance God has granted them. The prophet Amos wrote that after a brief time in enslavement, God would bring Israel out of captivity again to build the waste cities and inhabit them. And this time of rebuilding would be permanent. Amos further states that God will plant Israel upon their land and they shall no more be pulled down out of their land which God has given to them. This is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. Watergate. This word is associated with exposure of corruption. When an American president 48 years ago was caught trying to undermine an opposition political party and the nation's democracy was saved. Evidence shows more and more that narrative is a complete lie, as we will now hear in this report from Abraham Blondeau. When President Richard Nixon resigned on August 9, 1974, the entire world thought that a corrupt president had been caught breaking the law and that he was resigning in disgrace. The FBI, the CIA, Congress, the Senate, the media, they all assured the American people that the American democracy had been saved from a corrupt president. But nearly everything about this famous scandal was a lie. Over the past 50 years, more evidence has emerged that has exposed what the real Watergate scandal actually is. Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry first wrote about this in 2016 and is in our book, Great Again. Newly unveiled documents and research confirms that the real Watergate scandal wasn't a corrupt president breaking into the Democratic National Headquarters, but it was actually a radical left deep state plot to take down a duly elected president of the United States. However, you can't truly understand how important the Watergate scandal is unless you understand Bible prophecy, because it actually helps illuminate prophecies happening right now in the United States of America. The media narrative is that President Nixon was in the midst of a re-election year in 1972 and that he broke into the DNC headquarters in order to gain an advantage over the Democrats, in which he won a, a decisive landslide victory in, later that year in the election. The narrative goes that the burglars were part of an operation uh, led by the White House of Richard Nixon in order to wiretap and take secret documents from the DNC headquarters 
and that President Nixon obstructed the FBI investigation of uh, the scandal. The whole case hinged upon the prosecutors getting a hold of, of the taped conversations that the president had in the Oval Office. And once the Supreme Court compelled these tapes to be given to the prosecutors, Congress moved to impeach the president of several crimes, and after which President Nixon resigned in 1974 after about two years of, of investigations. That's the general narrative you'll hear. But there are three key areas that were hidden that actually exposed the real Watergate scandal. The first area to understand is that Richard Nixon was a staunch opponent of communism and that the radical left in the United States was determined to take Richard Nixon down because he had exposed one of the most prominent communist spies in American history. As Mr. Flory wrote in Great Again, the radical left's disdain for Nixon began in the 1940s when he investigated Soviet spy Alger Hiss, who was a Harvard Law School graduate and even a Supreme Court clerk to Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. He was even present at the delegation at the Yalta Conference when FDR, Winston Churchill, and Joseph Stalin were dividing up Europe post-World War II. Hiss worked for the Soviet Union and was able to penetrate the Truman administration and get to the highest places of the State Department. Richard Nixon was the one that brought Hiss down, and that is what made him a target to the radical left. The Watergate break-in wasn't about Nixon trying to get an unfair advantage over the Democrats in the election. It was actually about how the communists were infiltrating the Democratic Party. At that time, there already was a concerted effort by the communists in order to infiltrate key institutions in America. And Mr. Fuller explains this in great again, how they first infiltrated the universities and educational institutions, and then later different government departments. And Alger Hiss is a perfect example of this, where he actually went to Harvard Law School, the most prestigious university in the country, and became a Soviet spy. Jeff Shepard writes in his book, The Real Watergate Scandal, Nixon came to national prominence as a result of this investigation, and Hiss was convicted of perjury in 1950. The liberal Eastern establishment, particularly its many Harvard-educated members, never forgave Nixon for his leadership in bringing down one of their own. End quote. So even at that time, in the 40s and 50s, there already was the communist infiltration going on in many of America's universities. And as we will see, they already had a pretty prominent foothold in the Democratic Party at that time. Understanding the communist infiltration of America is key to understanding the Watergate scandal and even what's going on right now in America. And in fact, Herbert W. Armstrong warned in 1956 that the communists were infiltrating the United States as a way of attacking America's constitution and the very institutions that give us a stable society, including the family unit, the education system, and the government. Richard Nixon was one of the most prominent members of the American government that saw this infiltration and was trying to stop it, although he didn't really recognize the true scale of it at the time. And for this, he became a target of those departments that had already been infiltrated and who wanted to see Rich Richard Nixon out of power. Jim Hogan wrote a book in 1984 called Secret Agenda 
and it was really the first book to challenge the traditional narrative of the Watergate scandal. And in that book, he exposed how the CIA was actually was an integral part of the break-in at the Watergate scandal, the monitoring of the DNC, and that they in fact had their own agenda and had their own agenda behind what they were doing with their different informants. Hogan exposes how two of the burglars were actually longtime CIA informants and how the CIA was involved in every step of the investigation and actively sought to undermine President Nixon. The CIA even interfered and stopped President Nixon from seeing the different intelligence they gathered from the DNC. And one of the points Hogan brings up is that the media, the DNC, all the Washington, D.C. elite at that time, they weren't interested in what President Nixon was trying to find at the DNC headquarters. They were only capitalizing on the political opportunity to bring down the president. And the reason they didn't focus on what President Nixon was trying to find is that all that intelligence would have been incriminating to many of the people there and would have exposed just some of the the corruption and, and the communist links in the Democratic Party. Real Clear Politics writes, The cherished narrative Hogan proposed to upend belonged not just to any public event, but to the quintessential public event. A saturation coverage mythos embedded as deeply in the Western cultural imagination as the Civil War or the Beatles. And the lesson Hogan challenged most directly was the central one, the scandal's supposed saving grace. The system worked, end quote. Central to the narrative was that the judiciary, the lawyers, the system had stopped a corrupt president and had saved American democracy, when in fact it was the exact opposite. A corrupt judiciary, a corrupt lawyer class, a corrupt Washington, D.C. elite had all conspired to bring down a duly elected president. Hogan goes through how the Senate coached the different burglars and people involved in the Watergate scandal and how they responded to depositions in order to make them more incriminating of President Nixon. It's even revealed how the Democrats planted false evidence that was used to indict some of Nixon's aides in the Watergate scandal and that the FBI and CIA were fully aware of everything that was going on but were conspiring with the media and the narrative that was being built. It is even brought up that the CIA operatives working in the, the Nixon operation had questionable loyalty to Nixon and that most of the work they were doing actually undermined what the president was trying to uncover of the communist infiltration into the Democratic National Party. So Hogan exposed how the CIA was actually central to the story of the Watergate scandal, how they undermined President Nixon, and how they were part of building the narrative that was a lie. But the next part of the scandal goes beyond the CIA and the FBI into how the judiciary and the lawyers colluded in order to bring down President Nixon in an unconstitutional manner. Jeff Shepard wrote a book in 2015 called The Real Watergate Scandal, in which he exposes the unconstitutional activity of the judge and the lawyers involved in the Watergate trial. Judge Sirica was the judge presiding over the Watergate case, and he actually colluded with prosecutors behind closed doors, and they worked out how they would bring down Nixon during the trial. 
This is in direct violation of the Constitution in which judges and lawyers are meant to be separate, so there is a fair trial. Shepard wrote, Watergate prosecutors took the government files with them. These are government documents, and they should have stayed at National Archives and then subject to review with researchers like me. But three of the key prosecutors took their files. End quote. The prosecutors took their files with them because they were hiding these secret meetings they were having with the judge and the collusion that was going on in order to stop the president. In fact, the FBI and CIA have done the same thing, where they buried in confidential documents how they knew of the connection of the different agencies to the Watergate scandal. Mr. Flurry wrote, in great again, quote, Why did they take the files? Because they wanted to hide what they were doing. They didn't want the public to know that they were unjustly destroying a president and tearing down a government. Though he had no real idea of the scope of these activities, Richard Nixon did see through a lot of what these people were doing. He had stopped them, and they hated him for that. They were determined to take him down. End quote. Shepard continued in his book, Nixon was done in by the officers of the court, the very people sworn to uphold the law and the Constitution. Federal judges and federal prosecutors who met in secret and reached backroom deals on how to best take him down and secure conviction of his senior aides. That is the real Watergate scandal. End quote. Contrary to the narrative you'll hear in the media and in best-selling books that were published at that time, there was a massive amount of collusion between the FBI, the CIA, Congress, the Senate, the media, the judge, and the lawyers, all who wanted to take down the president who was exposing the communist infiltration of the United States. These are pretty stunning revelations that received very little headlines when they were first revealed. The reason why a lot of this information doesn't get notoriety is because it actually exposes what's going on in the United States today. A lot of the same players who were on the scene during Watergate are actually still on the political stage or in the media today. We have seen the exact same tactics used during the Watergate scandal to try to take down President Trump, including the FBI and CIA spying on the President of the United States. There is the Senate and the House using depositions and coaching people in order to attack the President. There's a collusion of lawyers and judges in court cases in order to try to indict the president of crimes. And there's media complicity in building false narratives in order to attack the sitting president of the United States. But this needs to be put in the framework of Bible prophecy. Trumpet editor-in-chief Mr. Flurry writes in the newly expanded book America Under Attack how this communist infiltration continued and how it actually inspired Barack Obama, who is the ringleader of all these activities against President Trump. Barack Obama is the president that is orchestrating scandal after scandal with the FBI, the CIA, the media, all these different government organizations to attack Donald Trump. Much of this has been exposed as John Durham has been investigating different members of these conspiracies. Mr. Flory wrote in America Under Attack, Mr. Trump correctly said Durham's filings, quote, provides indisputable evidence that my campaign and presidency were spied on by operatives paid by the Hillary Clinton campaign in an effort to develop a completely fabricated connection to Russia. 
This is a scandal far greater in scope and magnitude than Watergate, and those who were involved in and knew about this spying operation should be subject to criminal prosecution. End quote. The scandals against Donald Trump are far greater in scope and magnitude than the Watergate scandal. But understanding the Watergate scandal exposes how long the radical left has been gaining control over the different institutions of the United States. The real Watergate scandal helps expose the real scandals against Donald Trump. It helps expose the real big lie, which was the election seal of 2020. And all this can only be understood in the context of Bible prophecy. It's been 50 years since the Watergate scandal, and we are living through the biggest scandal in American political history. On the line isn't the career of a president of the United States. What's on the line is the very life of the Constitutional Republic. To learn more about the radical left infiltration, about the real scandals against Donald Trump, and how Barack Obama is at the very heart of all these scandals, please read our, our newly expanded book, America Under Attack. It's time for today's Last Word. A while ago, I was talking with someone working a construction job on a large lake in Oklahoma. Next door to his job site is a grandfather who's tried to make his home as inviting as possible for his grandkids. He bought a couple of boats for them to fish and ski with. He has beautiful acreage for them to run around on and play to their heart's content. But the grandfather lamented whenever they visit... His grandchildren just want to sit inside and watch movies or play video games. More and more young people don't even know what to do with themselves outside. I remember spending a lot of my youth outdoors. It happened that my family lived within a short walk or bike ride away from seemingly endless acres of woods in which my sister and I would climb trees, build forts, indulge our imaginations in countless ways. We had miles of roads to bike, fields to explore, sand piles to jump off of. I also grew up a half mile from a beach filled with all kinds of interesting things. Clams, crabs, kelp, skipping stones, driftwood, and other surprises that would wash ashore. Today, urbanization has turned yesterday's open woods into housing developments and strip malls. Sending kids out to roam the neighborhood is more dangerous. As a result, it seems that for most young people, the real world has begun to shrink. At the same time, thanks to television, movies, video games, and the internet, the virtual world for young people has dramatically expanded. A noisy, hyper world that requires no imagination and which they can experience while sitting comfortably on their cans. I have to wonder, though, how much of the problem lies in our own laziness as parents. My children and I have enjoyed reading The Little House on the Prairie books by Laura Ingalls Wilder. These books vividly describe the joys, labors, and trials of a homesteading family in the mid-1800s and show that our lives today are, by historical standards, undeniably easy. The result is we're far less capable and far less filled with wonder. Is it possible to reverse the trend? I picked up a couple of books 
filled with crafts for young people, one for girls and one for boys, written in the 1880s. I am amazed at how intensive and involved these activities are. These books describe how to make knives, how to rear wild birds, how to build boats. The American Boys Handy Book includes these chapter headings, homemade hunting apparatus, etc., practical taxidermy for boys, snowball warfare, the American Girls Handybook includes instruction on how to make plaster casts, how to reseat a chair, how to paint china, how to transform old furniture into new. A chapter on how to make a hammock reads, It is not difficult to make a hammock. Anyone can soon knit one that is strong and comfortable, and it should not cost more than 50 cents. The materials required will be one hammock needle about nine inches long, this can be whittled out of hickory or ash or purchased for 10 cents. Two iron rings, two and a half inches in diameter, which will cost about five cents each. Two mesh sticks or fids, one 20 inches long and eight inches wide, beveled on both sides. The other nine inches long and two and a half inches wide, beveled on the long edge. These you can easily make yourself from any kind of wood. Wow. You get the idea. The children in the 1880s must have been a different breed. An activity book telling girls today how to make a hammock would, I'm sure, begin, Step 1. Buy a hammock. Today, we are simply less capable because we're used to having everything handed to us. Frankly, as a 43-year-old man, I would burst with pride if I successfully made the hammock described in this book. And as I proudly invited guests to try it out, I would remain utterly tight-lipped about the fact that I found the instructions in a girl's crafts book. We need to provide our children regular, stimulating challenges, hunt down opportunities to keep them active, to engage their imaginations, to work their hands, to show them what they can do if they only make the effort. It's so much easier to keep a child indoors, to plop them in front of a screen of some kind. In some ways, it's even safer. But I'm convinced that in the long run, it comes at a high cost. I've spent many summers volunteering at church-sponsored youth camps. It always makes me smile to see teens biking, canoeing, shooting arrows, running, and playing outside. Over the years, I've noticed that generally the stamina, physical coordination, and skill level among teens has dipped somewhat. The military has noticed this trend in its new recruits as well. One recruiter said that while their overall physical capabilities have dropped, they do have strong thumbs. Still, at a good summer camp, they push themselves physically, often past what they feel capable of, and have a rigorous outdoor experience. It exposes them to realms of possibility that they probably would never discover on their own and contributes to happy, shining faces and a visibly healthier outlook on life. Young people have strong, youthful bodies for a reason. We need to encourage them and teach them how to engage themselves vigorously in real-world activity to do, as Ecclesiastes says, whatever their hand finds to do with their might.
I'm Joel Hilliker, and that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on today's program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our contributors, Philip Nice, Andrew Miller, and Abraham Blondeau. Thanks to Nick Irwin and Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from Thomas Merton. Life is a very great gift and a great good, not because of what it gives us, but because of what it enables us to give to others. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.